we're working on 20 years probably uh, approaching that of uh, doing these. So if the Lord allows me uh, to live, you know, if it's 20, I need what, 40, 46 more years or something like that to do all 66. But actually we combined some, like 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We did that together, I know. And we did, well, so maybe we don't need 66 years to do them all, but, uh, but we'll, we'll be getting close, maybe, maybe 20 more years. That put me at about 78. I should still be able to do this, I hope. But it's good to be back, uh, and it's Ephesians this year, so uh, not a massive undertaking. Uh, it is, I think in terms of content, it's, it's, there's a lot to cover. It's weighty, but in terms of chapters, it's six chapters. And um, so here's, 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 my, here's my goal, and let me, let me just kind of walk you through Ephesians just a little bit and so you can kind of see the big picture and where we're going over the course of uh, today and Wednesday night. So Ephesians starts, if you, if you got your outline there, you might get that out and sort of follow along. I'll look at it so I, so I can tell you. Well, I didn't bring one. It's okay. It's fine. Uh, if you look, you've got the opening, uh, which is verses 1 and 2. So we're going to do that this morning. Uh, that's where we're going to start. So that's going to tell you who's writing and sending the letter. Of course, it's Paul. It's going to tell you who the audience is, and it's going to give you a little blessing, grace and peace to you. That's a very standard kind of opening to a letter of Paul. Not all the letters in the New Testament follow that form uh, as, as rigidly as Paul tends to. He doesn't do the same thing every time, but pretty close. So we've got the opening. Then we have, in, in almost all of Paul's letters, what follows the opening is a Thanksgiving section. Now he doesn't have a Thanksgiving in Galatians because he's really mad at them. So he goes right into expressing his displeasure with them. Uh, I am astonished you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for another gospel. I mean, his astonishment at their heresy is where he starts. No thanksgiving. But most of his letters have a thanksgiving section following the opening. The letter to the Ephesians and 2 Corinthians are two of his letters that vary it just a little bit. There is a thanksgiving, but it, it comes only after he gives a blessing or praise to God. And he does it in only two of his letters, Ephesians and 2 Corinthians. And you'll recognize it as something like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who? And then he explains why he's giving praise to God. Another way to say that would be, praise be to God, or blessed be the God. So it's a, it's a praise or blessing section. Uh, and that's chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. That's where he does the blessing. We're going to do that this morning also. That's where we're going to start. So the opening and then the, that blessing section. And then he actually prays for them, and it's part of a thanksgiving section. Because of their faith and because of their love, that's something he typically thanks God for on behalf of his churches, he offers a prayer on their behalf to God. And so that's going to be the sermon in the second session we do this morning. Uh, and that's going to be 1, 15 through 23. So that's, that's chapter 1. Chapter 2 then begins the body of Ephesians. And that's going to go all the way through from 2, 1, all the way through to chapter 6, about verse 20. Nearly the end of it, because it has a very short conclusion. So the, the, the largest part of the letter is the body of the letter. 
And it breaks pretty naturally into two sections. Uh, Chapters 2 and 3 is sort of the theological reflection. It's the weightier theology. Chapter 2 especially. Uh, We'll do that tonight. And we'll do chapter 3 tonight. So we got two sessions tonight. One of those we'll do chapter 2. The other one we'll do chapter 3. Chapter 3 is another prayer on behalf of the Ephesians. And and what you're going to discover if, if you read through Ephesians closely or you just listen to the study that we're doing today and Wednesday night, Paul has extensive prayer as he writes this letter. He expresses prayer in the letter. And just the tone of the letter and the things that he says, it, it's almost like Paul writes this on his knees. It's almost like he's praying the whole letter. Uh, and you got, So you have two significant prayers in uh, Ephesians for his readers or for his hearers. And chapter 3 is, is a prayer, and also Paul talks about his call to be apostle to the Gentiles. So that's, that makes up the theological reflection of the body, chapters 2 and 3. 4, 5, and to the very end of 6 is more the exhortation section. He, he calls them to walk in a certain way, walk in a certain manner. And he's going to use that little phrase, therefore walk like this, five times. And it starts chapter 4, verse 1, and he's going to do that at 417. And, he, and there's five of those sections, in, starting in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, therefore walk or live. Some translations will say live, but the word he uses is actually walk. And by walking, he means how you live, how you walk. Walk in a certain way, live in a certain way. So, four, five, and near the end of six, all this uh, exhortation to live now in a certain way in light of the theological reflection. So, then you got a little conclusion. So, the way that breaks down for us, we're going to do chapter one this morning. And between the two sessions, we have this session, then we have the worship. That's going to cover chapter one. Then tonight we'll do the theological reflection section of the body that's chapters two and three and then on wednesday night we'll actually do four five and six and i know that sounds like it's a lot but it's really built around these five exhortations and that's the way we'll handle that on wednesday night so that that's kind of how we'll get through the the letter of ephesians that's where we're going so i give you i'll give you an assignment i mean that's what i do so i don't feel like i've done my job if you don't have an assignment Now, this assignment will not be graded, and uh, there'll be no test at the end, so relax. It's a lot better than actually taking a class and having to pay for it. Uh, This is on you, but here's what I would ask you to do. Sometime, especially if you're coming tonight, and I hope you're able to do that, I hope that you have an opportunity to sit down and read Ephesians. Next promise you it won't take you very long so sit down read through Ephesians just in one sitting if you can Uh, and and you'll be able to it won't take you very long I would guess 25 minutes uh, 30 at the max and that would be I mean that you know that that, that, you could do that Uh, I know uh, NCAA tournament day Kentucky plays at like 140 uh, but I've already read through it so I don't have to today, but, 
the rest of you, you can t- I, I give you the permission to read it instead of watching at least 30 minutes of the Kentucky game today. But I would urge you just to sit down and read through it. Because my comments on it are, are, are only that, comments on the text. The text is the thing. So if you read through the text and, and you sort of let it soak in a little bit with you, then whatever comments I make will have a lot more meaning if you can see that it's coming from the text and how it relates to the text. So that's my assignment. I might ask you tonight, and if I'm really feeling, you know, like on the edge, I might ask everybody who read Ephesians today, raise your hand. I won't say, who's here and you didn't read Ephesians today, raise your hand. I won't ask it that way. However, if the person next to you has the hand up and you don't, you're, you're busted. So uh, that's my assignment for, for today, and, and that's it. And um, I, I, I don't know if I'll ask or not. I might just for fun. But if, if something happens you can't do it today, then do it tonight uh, before you come back on Wednesday night. And it wouldn't hurt if you read it every day between now and Wednesday. If you really wanted to let sort of immerse yourself in it, soak it up, uh, I think it'd be well worth your time. Okay, now I'm going to put my glasses on here. Let me see which ones. Yep, that's the right ones. And uh, let's get started in Ephesians chapter 1. Let's look at the opening. Uh, It's verses 1 and 2. And this is going to allow us to get into the background uh, of the letter a little bit. So let's just read uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God... To the saints who are in Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So now any letter opening is going to give you basic information about who's sending it, who who he's sending it to, and a little greeting or blessing at the end of that. So we get at the first, the first word is Paul. That tells us who's writing this. Uh, there, are, there are some scholars, uh, not in Baptist circles, not in evangelical circles, but there are scholars who, who question Paul's authorship of Ephesians and Colossians, particularly those two, as well as First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, but that, that's, a, that's a pretty radical assertion to make, that Paul didn't write it when Paul's letter is attached to it. You'd have to argue that someone else wrote it and placed Paul's name on it. And uh, for the most part, I would say there's very little uh, evidence of that happening in the ancient world, that people did that. And if they did, there was probably at least some level of trying to deceive someone into thinking that it was written by the person whose name's on it, just so it would find acceptance, just so it would have more authority. And uh, I have a lot of concerns about having just that that kind of approach to a, a document in Scripture. Now, if it's Hebrew, where it doesn't say who wrote it, why, well, it doesn't matter who you say wrote it. It doesn't matter. Because the text doesn't claim an author. So you can, it's just hypothesis, whatever you say about who wrote Hebrews. There's no name on it. But there's a name on this one. And so you'd have to have incredibly strong evidence, from my point of view, in order to uh, question Paul's authorship of it. And most of the questions revolve around style and vocabulary. 
And it is true that, that the sentences, sentence structure tends to be a bit longer in Ephesians and Colossians than in Paul's, some of Paul's earlier, earlier letters, like, say, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Galatians, uh, and Romans. In fact, uh, three of the longest sentences in the New Testament uh, are in Ephesians and Colossians. Uh, the longest sentence in the New Testament is cha Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, which we're hopefully going to get to a little bit this morning. Uh, it's like 202 words, I think, or 200, yeah, I think 202 words, a 202-word sentence. That's a long sentence in Greek. Now, if you're looking at your English translation, looking at uh, verses 3 through 14 and you're thinking well that's not one sentence there's lots of sentences here well that's not Paul that's your English translation putting it into clear concise understandable English and we typically don't have sentences in English that long if a student at OBU turned in a paper to me with a 202-word sentence I assure you I would mark all over it saying break this up into smaller units Better to be clear, better to be concise in your sentence structure than sentences that long. And then uh, Colossians chapter 1 has the second longest sentence, and then the third longest sentence is uh, also in Ephesians. We'll see it also uh, today. So that and vocabulary. There's about 80 words in Ephesians that are not in any other of Paul's letters the ones that are agreed to be by Paul, by the people who question it. Um, but when you open the letter, what's the first word? Paul. So is there some other explanation for sentence structure and vocabulary that, that you might offer uh, that might still be Paul, there might be a reason? And I always come back to two things. One, the purpose for which you write affects your style. Uh, what you're trying to accomplish, the issues you might be addressing, that's going, to, uh, that's going to impact the style with which you write and the vocabulary that you, you, you choose to use in writing your letter. Uh, also, uh, this le these letters are prison letters. There are four letters in the New Testament that are grouped together called prison letters. Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So Ephesians is one of these prison letters. It's called that because Paul is in prison when he writes it. And if you want to, let's go ahead and look at that. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles, now, it's possible he's just using that sort of as a metaphor, like I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. Now he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. But typically, if Paul uses the language of being a prisoner, he's actually a prisoner, which we know happened to him uh, on multiple occasions. Then look at chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner, uh, urge you, in the Lord to walk in a worthy manner uh, of your calling with which you were called. But there's that language again where he refers to himself as a prisoner. I, the prisoner, urge you. And then look in chapter 6, verse 20. 
where he again uh, uses this language. Uh, I, am an, I am, he says, uh, for whom I am an ambassador in chains, which is the language of, you know, being held in bond, bonds. I am an ambassador, that is, I'm an envoy, it's another word for almost apostle, in chains. So there are three references in Ephesians. You also have references in Philippians, and you have references in Colossians, and you have references in Philemon to Paul being a prisoner. So I think that may impact, the fact that you're in prison when you write may impact the language you use, the structure you write with, the audience you're writing to, and the fact that this is probably 60, between 60 and 62. If you, look, if you go back, it's been a decade since he wrote First and Second Thessalonians. It's been probably six years since he wrote Galatians. Those earlier letters of Paul are about like a decade in the past. And uh, I think over time, your vocabulary increases, uh, can, can at least expand. You hope that it does. So, so when you put it all together, there are other reasons to think that Paul could have written it, and maybe the style is different, because of the purpose for which he's writing, the audience to whom he's writing, his own growth as a writer, and then the use of secretaries. It's got a fancy term uh, if you go to seminary, but it's just a secretary. The term's amanuensis, but I don't ever use that word. I do use secretary, someone who you're dictating to. And Paul refers to, or in the letter to the Romans in chapter 16, actually says, I tertius. Write this with my own hand. That's Romans 16, like 22. Well, I thought Paul was writing this letter. Well, he is, but it appears that Tertius is his secretary. This was common in the ancient world. Uh, people would use a scribe or a secretary, and they would dictate the letter, and, and the secretary would write the letter down. And it, apparently, some secretaries had a little more freedom in, to express what what was being dictated to them and it's possible that I would guess Silas is a good option we're gonna see Silas's name uh, mentioned in uh, first Peter as a secretary and probably carrier of the letter uh, I would say that's a possibility for Ephesians and or it could have been any of Paul's co-workers uh, but that might also impact the style and I would say God's inspiration somehow is working through all of that not only on the, the, the person who's responsible for the content of the letter, in this case Paul, if he's using a secretary, I would say that God's, God's overseeing of the process of writing would extend to the secretary. I would say God's providence in the, in the bringing to be of his word of scripture would also carry over to the collection of the letters to the fact that the 27 New Testament documents that become the New Testament, God's providence is working in that just as he was inspiring the writers. And so uh, I, there's no problem with inspiration to say Paul used a secretary. I would just say God's providence was at work in both Paul and the secretary to produce it just as God wanted it to be. But these are, these are my ways of thinking through this question that, that is true longer sentences a little bit different vocabulary but for me that does not in any way 
uh, call into question whether or not Paul could be responsible for this document, and it's appropriate to bear his name. So we won't talk about that again. We'll just assume it's Paul, but if you were reading something or watching something on PBS and they were talking, you might hear questions about Paul's authorship. That would be at the heart of it. So we got Paul himself in this letter as apostle, which he does in nine of his 13 letters. In nine out of the 13 letters that bear Paul's name, he calls himself apostle, which just means one who is sent out, which describes well Paul's mission, ministry. Through the will of God, now we get the results to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, I'm interested uh, in two things in that line. One, with the reference to his audience as is this going, you, I, I'm sure you can hear this going in and out. If you all want me to do something else, I'll do it. I don't know if I'm, I don't think I'm doing anything because of that. I know you're noticing it because I'm noticing it. You can hear me now, though. Oh, saints. Now I'm out. Now I'm in. There I am. Maybe if I just stand still, it seems like when I move more, it, maybe we can get it so I can move in between. Saints. So, what is a saint? We have all sorts of messages sent to us, primarily from um, Catholic doctrine and thinking, that a saint is someone who has achieved something morally or spiritually above other people. And there's actually a process uh, in the Catholic Church for achieving sainthood. After your death, the Pope can decide based on, let's say you've, re you've led a heroically virtuous life or you gave your life as a martyr. For either of those purposes, uh, you could be declared, you could reach the level of venerable. Now, you're not a saint, but you're, the process has started for you. And then, if, you, if there's a confirmed miracle then you might move to the next level, which is blessed. So you can be venerable, confirm miracle, blessed, and then another confirmed miracle, the Pope can grant you canonization. That is, you are now formally, officially a saint in the church. And uh, that, that's happened, that happens rather rather frequently it, it's happened there's american catholics who've been declared to be saints i think the pope visited the united states in maybe the, the 70s and uh, elizabeth seaton uh was she was already dead but she was sainted she was achieved the level of canonization and um that's the way we think about saints it's somebody who has you know a heroically virtuous life Maybe someone who's martyred, I don't think we think about them having had to work a miracle, but we do think about them as these almost like super Christians. I mean, don't we use that language like such and such is, is a saint? And, and we set them apart from other Christians as if they're more virtuous or more godly or something like that. Ah, there's my friend.
study of the New Testament, it's not that there are certain people in Jesus' status that they deserve to be called saints. Paul calls anybody who's part of the people of God a saint. It just means that you are someone who is dedicated to God, someone who is set apart for God's purposes. At the end of uh, at the end of the this section in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, he talks about you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You've been sealed. God's stamp is upon you. He has sealed you by His Spirit. You belong to Him. You are a saint. Now, that might not, that has really nothing to do with your resume for, you know, virtuous, uh, leading a virtuous life. We hope that being designated a saint by God, that God considers you one of his people, he's put his stamp upon you, you, have, you are dedicated to God. We hope that that leads you to living a certain kind of life that should motivate you to want to live up to that title. But the fact is, if you're part of the people of God, you are a saint. Paul uses the language in all of his letters. 1 Corinthians that opening section, the opening and the Thanksgiving section, is just filled with him referring to them as saints. And I'm thinking, reading the rest of the letter, if there was any group of people, believers in the early church, that didn't deserve the tag saint, it was the Corinthians. And yet he drops it everywhere, calling them saints. You were called to be saints, he says. So sainthood is something that just describes the people of God. And it, it means that we are dedicated, we are set apart for God's purposes. That's why stuff like furniture in the temple could be called holy. It's the same word, holy or saint. It's a Greek word, hagios. It, it gets translated either saint, or you could translate it here, to the holy ones who are at Ephesus. Or to the saints who are at Ephesus. So it, it, you can refer to, you know, this table could be called holy. Not because it's virtuous, but because it is dedicated for God's purposes. I would guess this particular table isn't used often for like eating on. Uh, or to stand up on it and try to do exercises for balancing yourself. Or whatever else you might do with a round table like this. I'm guessing this table, this round table... Uh, almost all of its use is doing what it does right now. It's dedicated for that purpose. Thus, it's holy. And bread that was made for the priests was called holy bread. Why? Because it was dedicated to the priests. It wasn't for everyone to eat. Priests in the Old Testament, we learn in Exodus, have a stamp on them to the Lord. They were dedicated to God. So when he refers to them as saints, that's what he means. You people who are part of the people of God. You people whom God has stamped, he's sealed. You're a saint. Now, what's that mean for how you live? Now go live like that. That's who God has called you to be. Now go be that. And it's just... Uh, it, it's, it's a beautiful way to think about how, how God motivates us to live right. It's not go, 
you know, do three miracles and, uh, you know, be obedient to the Ten Commandments perfectly for six months, and I'll call you saint. It is, I have called you saint. Now go live like that. It's, uh, it, it shows God's love and his choice of us, and, and it calls us in light of that love and mercy and grace that he's shown to us to go live a certain way. That should be the greatest motivator to live like saints, that God has already called you saint. He's not saying, go live a certain way and I'll call you saint. I'll let you be part of my people. It's, I've called you to be part of my people. Now go live like that. Now, look in your text there. Uh, after to the saints or the holy ones who are in Ephesus. Do any of you have a little note there at in Ephesus that indicates some manuscripts do, do not contain the phrase in Ephesus? I'm just curious. Anybody see a note? You have brackets or do you have a footnote there at in Ephesus that says some manuscripts don't? Just lift your hand. Let me see. See, a lot of you have a translation that mentions that. It, it is an interesting variant that there are, a, there are a number of manuscripts of the Greek New Testament that just have an empty space, that have nothing where up most of the manuscripts say in Ephesus. There's no location stated. Now, these manuscripts all come from the same area. That's where, where they've been discovered, in and around Alexandria, Egypt. Um, and... There's no manuscript anywhere that has any other city in the slot where it should say in Ephesus. So most of the manuscripts, the vast majority of manuscripts say at Ephesus or in Ephesus to the saints who are in Ephesus or at Ephesus. There are, there are few manuscripts that don't say anything there. It's just missing. There's no location stated. Which has led to lots of speculation about maybe Paul... Uh, didn't address didn't didn't put a city maybe he left it blank and um and the, the, what that leads to is the possibility just the possibility that maybe this letter was meant to be read to more churches than this than simply the church at ephesus now if you've ever been to turkey uh or you've ever looked closely at the seven churches of revelation Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Sardis, Thyatira, Laodicea, Philadelphia. If you look at those churches, the first one mentioned is Ephesus of the seven churches of Revelation. But these other churches, of course, the book of Revelation was, was written to seven churches. And it looks like it was carried to each of those seven churches that I just named. They're very close together. Uh, they're none, not one of those cities, if you just travel them in the order that they are listed in, in, in the book of Revelation... There's the, the greatest distance between either of those cities is like 50 miles, you know, to the next city. And I'm, I'm, I think it's a good possibility that when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't only mean it to be read to the church at Ephesus, but his intent was for it to be read in all those churches in that area, just like the seven churches of Revelation. And then I can see how uh, maybe in some people copying the manuscript, knowing it was going to be read to multiple churches, might just leave a blank there, and then whoever's reading it would just read in the, the church's name. Like if, if I were sent with the letter today by Paul, say to the saints who are at Emmaus, and maybe the, you, you, you know, if I'm copying a manuscript for you, this church, maybe I leave 
an empty slot there. But again, the majority of the manuscripts say at Ephesus, in Ephesus, the ones who pack it are all from one, the same area. And it, it lacks a little balance if you take it out. To the saints who are, or to the saints, and then look at the next line. To the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, within Ephesus, look at the balance there. To the saints who are in Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Do you see the balance between those two lines? Saints in Ephesus, faithful in Christ. The balance is right. So uh, I'm, I'm on board with Paul having written it, and Paul actually having written to the saints who are at Ephesus. And I like the balance that that provides. To the saints in Ephesus. That's a physical location. Now, it might have been read to other churches, but the first audience and the primary audience was the church at Ephesus. That's physically where they were. You could put that in your GPS. You can, you can put, like, uh, library at Ephesus in your GPS. That's going to take you to the side of the globe. You're not going to get there this afternoon. But that's a physical location. And then the next line, to the faithful parallels saints to the faithful in Christ Jesus now that's not a physical location that's a spiritual location that's a spiritual designation that you are in Christ we are in more that's our physical location this morning but we're in Christ that's our spiritual identity we're not in Adam today we're part of family of God we're not in Adam, we're in Christ, and he is in us. And the, I like the balance there in that, in, to the recipients. To the saints who are in Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. And then you get your greeting. Uh, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So just the background facts here. Who did I say wrote it? Paul. And where was he when he wrote it? He was in prison. Now, where, we don't know. Uh, the tradition has been, for most Christianity, that he was in prison in Rome at the time when he wrote all four of those letters. But he doesn't say he's in Rome, and I don't think much rides really on whether or not that was the imprisonment. We know he was in prison in Philippi for a night. We know he was in prison for Caesarea for two years. We do know he was in prison in Rome under house arrest for two years, but he was in prison. And I think that's what's important, likely in Rome. But I want you to remember that as we go through this document, as we talk about this letter. I want you to remember that the person who's saying these things is in prison. He's not on the deck of a cruise ship. He's not out, you know, watching a parade go by. He's not at the final four watching a basketball, you know, and going back to the room and writing in this time off. He's a prisoner. And uh, I think it's worth keeping that as mind, in mind as we read. And I'm probably going to date it then if he is in prison in Rome, 60 to 62. And I think he did mean it to be read to churches in this area with Ephesians being the primary one. Now let's look at 3 through 14. 
for about 15 minutes, um, which is the blessing section. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of your translations might say, praise be to God, to, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it is a praise for every spiritual blessing. Look at how he phrases it here in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Now that's a mouthful right there. But the bottom line is he wants to give praise to God because he has blessed us, that is Paul and the audience, with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies. So we're back to that language of in Christ again, which Paul really likes. I mean, he uses the phrase either in Christ, uh, I think he uses that something like 30, 30 plus times, and then the phrase in Christ Jesus, he uses that 40 plus times. It's real close to like 80 times he uses the phrase, not in Ephesians, in all of his letters, in, in all 13. <laughs> he uses the phrase in Christ Jesus or in Christ. It's a, it's a significant way to identify who we are. In fact, I would argue that is our primary identity marker. That I am part of the people of God. I am in Christ. That's who I am. That's the most important identity marker for my being. Now, I can say lots of things about myself to identify myself. I can give you my name. Uh, I can tell you I teach at OBU. You know, you think of the things you tell people if you meet somebody and they, and they ask you some questions or you're, you're trying to describe yourself. Think of what you would tell them in order to describe yourself. I'm a Kentuckian. Uh, I'm a Kentucky basketball fan. Right? They play today at one something. I used to know, but now my son plays... And Kentucky's taking second place now to, to my son's uh, basketball. Yeah, I'm a Dale Pirate fan because uh, that's where my son plays. Um, I'm a husband. Um, my wife's name is Angie. I have two sons. My other son's Luke. He's a student at OBU. I, I mean, I could say I'm a male. I could say I'm a heterosexual. I mean, there are, you think of all the ways you can identify yourself, but all those are secondary designations. I'm an American. That's a secondary designation. All these are secondary designations. My primary identity marker is I am a follower of Jesus. That's my identity. I am in Christ. And we do well all of us and Christianity would be better if if we all sort of understood that as our identity marker and and we let other things identify us we think if we I, I, if we're not careful we put some of these other things ahead of I am in Christ as our primary identity I see it with a, a lot of the discussions about sexuality at the present time um like the LGBTQ designation. For some of the folks that I know who, who would claim that designation, that seems to be their primary identity marker. And 
those kinds of identity markers can't be your primary identity marker if you are in Christ. That's your primary identity. We'd all do well if that's how we thought of ourselves first. I am in Christ. I am a child of God. I am a follower of Jesus. Everything else about us is secondary to that. And so when Paul wants to thank God, give praise to God, bless God for every spiritual blessing, it's always in Christ. Everything God has done for us is in Christ. And then in the heavenlies. And Paul likes that phrase. He'll use it, I think, six times in in the letter. We'll see all the times by Wednesday night. For him, that's not, I don't think that's a location. I don't think that these spiritual blessings are up somewhere physically above us, where we usually think of the heavens. But in the heavenlies, or in heavenly places, I'm not sure how your translation is handling it, it is referring to that which is eternal. Oftentimes, that which is unseen. And and you'd think that he's talking maybe about the, you know, like up in the sky where we think about heaven. But in chapter 6, verse 12, he uses that phrase to refer to the worldly powers, which he says are in the heavenlies or in the heavenly places. And I don't think that means they're in heaven, but that means that, that these are eternal powers and that they're unseen. And so when he says every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies, These are spiritual blessings, and they're often unseen. You can't see that you've been raised up with Christ. You can't see that you've been seated with Christ at the right hand of God. You can't see that today. It's a spiritual blessing. It's an eternal blessing. But he wants to thank God for these spiritual blessings. Now, what are they? There are three in verses 4 through uh, 14. Or excuse verse 3 through 14, starting here in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world in order that we might be holy and blameless before him. There is the first spiritual blessing. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Here's the first spiritual blessing that Paul wants to give thanks to God for. He wants to praise God for. Our election. That God chose us. Now I know everybody gets just a slightly bit squeamish. If you follow, if, if you've read much theology, if you read, the, if you re, if you got a Twitter account, if you've ever had a, even a basic theology class, you know there are designations like Calvinism or Arminianism. And they can be very divisive. Well, in the time I've got, I'm going to try not to be divisive. I don't want to be divisive. When we talk about election, which is a New Testament doctrine, it's an Old Testament doctrine too. God chose Israel. That's election. In the New Testament, he chose us, the people of God, along with Israel. It should not be divisive. Whenever Paul talks about election, it's part of praise to God. Election leads him to praise. It leads us to argument. And that's a big loss 
for the Christian community when election, the doctrine of election, leads us to arguing and debating and sometimes dividing. In the most simple way I can explain it, here's what election means. God chose me. That's it. God chose me, as he describes it here, before the foundation of the world. I, I don't know uh, what you write in like your Valentine's card to your husband or wife or what you write, you know, uh, Mother's Day. Maybe you write to your, your, your wife's a good mother, so you write her a card even on Mother's Day. Or, or just what you tell her when you want her to know how much you love her. But I, I think it's, a, it's something worth telling. Both spouses could say to the other, you know, I chose you. And I'd choose you again. I'm 30 years now, coming up on, you know, I'm going to be 31 years uh, marriage this year. And I chose my wife. I mean, I, I decided to marry her, wanted to marry her. I asked her to marry me. She chose me by saying yes. But I chose her. And if, when I'm thinking about it, I like to say I'd choose you again every day. For 31 years I like to hear that too it's not just I chose you and boy what a big mistake that was <laughs> or I could have I could have made a lot better choice no not that and especially not when it comes to God's election of us he chose you and anytime you start to think you chose God now you're, you're confusing the, this, whatever this election is. He chose me before the foundation of the world. Before I could choose him, he chose me. And that should give us confidence and hope that I, I can't, I didn't choose God. He chose me. Now, after he chose me, yeah, I, I remember walking the aisle in Middlesboro, Kentucky in the October of 1975 to say I choose to follow Jesus in the best way I understood how to do it. But I could not have done that had he not chosen me. It's that whenever you think you found God or you were chasing God or you chose God, you just know he already chose you. And it's not just God knowing something in advance. The, the way the, 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 the doctrine is expressed in the New Testament, it, he, it, he chose that Jesus would die for us. That was election, using the same language. Was that just him knowing in advance, or is there some sort, some element of God's determined will in his choice of me and of you? And... It's meant to give us confidence and hope. He's counting it as a spiritual blessing that he wants to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who chose us before the foundation of the world. Let, let this lift you today. Let this lift your sense of who you are and your identity. If you feel like you're worthless and you don't have a lot of value in the world and people don't value you enough and maybe they don't, but know this, God chose you 
I mean, what, what greater thing to say than I was chosen by God to be part of his people, to be a saint. And then he uses the language going on in verse 5. Having, been, having predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, unto the praise of the glory of his grace, which he lavished upon us in his beloved Son. Now the adoption is part of the election. He chose us before the foundation of the world having predestined us to be or to adoption that is to be his children to be sons and daughters of God adoption is something we talk about in the real world but it's not it's something we don't talk about enough when we're talking theology it is a very important way to refer to what God has done for us in Christ he has adopted us into his family Paul uses this language in Galatians 4, 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that we might receive adoption to sonship. So what, what does this adoption mean? It means that prior to our adoption into God's family, we were spiritual orphans. Now, we know what an orphan is in the world, someone without a family, someone without a place to call home. And so there, there are agencies uh, that will take in, uh, if you're under 18 years old, and give you a place to call home and something of a family, and the opportunity then to be adopted into someone's family. I don't think any of us would choose to be an orphan or would have chosen to be an orphan in this world. You think about the, how difficult that would have to be to, to maybe not know who your, your family was. Or even if you do know your family, to feel like maybe they didn't want to have you or they weren't capable of taking care of you. And hoping to be adopted into a family and knowing that every year that goes by, your chances of being adopted get smaller and smaller. And think of making it through maybe to age 18. And then sort of being sent out into the world now without the kind of support that my children have. Without feeling that sense of identity, of being part of this family, of a family. And all the blessings that that brings to have a family in this world. Well, that's who we were spiritually. We were orphans. And it's not just Gentiles like you and me, Jews too. You know, like Father Abraham, he was an Iraqi Gentile before that experience where God called him and said, you know, leave your homeland, go to a place I'll show you. He was a spiritual orphan, Jew and Gentile. There's only one natural born child of God. His name's Jesus. All the rest of us are adopted children into God's family. So we were spiritual orphans. Thanks be to God that we received adoption and adoption into God's family. And now we are heirs. 
by virtue of being adopted into God's family, we are heirs of God. I mean, co-heirs with Jesus. He's the natural-born child of God. We're co-heirs with Him. It's such an amazing spiritual blessing to think that we were chosen by God to be part of His family. He has invited us into His family. We are no longer spiritual orphans. We are no longer without an inheritance. We have an inheritance that's being kept in heaven for us, and we are being guarded for that inheritance. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, which we've done here a few years ago. The other thing I think about when I think about adoption is my, my own reality is that I came from a home. I did have a family, thanks be to God. I had a believe, believing mother. My dad was an alcoholic until I was 12 and do you know what that means for my chances of being an alcoholic the fact that my dad was an alcoholic and my dad made a lot of bad choices in life often related to his alcoholism but you know in some individuals and often in families it seems like making bad choices is sometimes almost genetic and Here's part of the spiritual blessing that we receive that I think doesn't get enough attention. That by the power of the Spirit, our spiritual adoption actually does more than just sort of legally say, now you belong to God. There's also some sort of transformation that goes on genetically. Some sort of extreme gene therapy happens by the power of the Spirit that I'm no longer bound to the bad decision-making of my dad or my grandfather or what might be in my family. Now, it's not a guarantee that I might not make bad decisions, but I'm not bound to it. I'm set free from that bondage. I'm, I'm now part of a new family, the family of God. And I can live by the power of the Spirit, free of alcohol, free of gambling, free of womanizing, free of a lot of things that I can find in my gene pool if I want to go back. This is the good news of our adoption to sonship. And, and for this, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I think it's time for a break. Uh, and I'll tell you what, we'll come back and we'll kind of pick this up in the worship service all right so that's 10 what time 10 45 so you got a few minutes to get some coffee and move so i'll see you in a minute